1: Good afternoon. I'm Rochelle McHugh bringing you backstory today, filling in for Mel on a well deserved break. Now, coming up on today's show, we are going to be talking with debut crime writer Lorraine Peck. We're going to talk about her novel, The Second Son. It's an action packed crime novel that creates a world where honour is everything, violence is its own language, and love means breaking all the rules. Then, after that, joining me will be award winning Australian writer Christy Collins. We're going to talk about The Price of Two Sparrows, a beautiful, elegantly structured study of migration and community in Australia.
0: Triple R on, on FM Earth. Digital Online via the app.
1: Okay, I'm really thrilled now because on the phone I have my first guest, Lorraine Peck. We're going to be talking about her debut novel, The Second Son. It's a fast-paced and compelling story set in a world where honour is everything, violence is its own language and love means breaking all the rules. Welcome, Lorraine.
0: Hi, Trish. No- lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: You are so welcome. I'm really excited. It was, um, it was such a fantastic read. And I must say, the opening line, I dream in English now. It's such a powerful and compelling way into a character. Where did such a delicious line come from?
0: <laughs> I don't know how to my crazy imagination, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 the first, that prologue actually written uh, quite late in the process because i um i'm not a planner i'm a pantser apparently you can divide authors into planners and pantsers and the pantsers are the one who just fly by the seat of their pants and i'm one of those <laughs> so when i when i'm writing i have when i started the book i had no idea where the characters would take me and where it would end so it wasn't until I finished. until was close to finishing the first draft that I even knew who had killed Ivan Novak, the eldest son, the first son of the, the Novak family. Uh, and and it, that murder is what um, uh, sort of sets the book off. And, and that's why the second son, Johnny Novak, has to... Step up and seek revenge, so uh, I didn't know how it was going to end till I got to the end, and one of the last scenes I wrote was the prologue.
1: I love that I love that <laughs> going going to the beginning at the end um, you also yeah. you look at male toxicity and and the desire to honor one's own family. why is it that we are so fascinated with crime
0: families yeah, it's interesting, isn't it mm. I think um, yeah. And, I think it's it's to do with the outliers. You know, they have a different moral code to the rest of us. Um, they still have this same great sense of loyalty and duty to their family that most of the rest of us do as well. But they just have a different way of dealing with problems. And, uh, you know, organised crime is usually very organised and and the people that run these kind of organisations could run big corporations and there is a hierarchy and there is a code and there is ethical conduct within the gang and gangs are very tribal. Um, But they're just... It's a different code of ethics from the one here to... You know, within the rest of within within our society, because they will win at any cost. I mean, that's the focus. and it's all about you know implied threat, implied violence is so much more compelling than actually having to uh, you know um to murder someone. so, I think that's, that's why we're fascinated by the dynamics, you know, and who's in charge and who's at the bottom of the rung and working your way up through the hierarchy, all that sort of stuff. And that happens within families also, but... I think crime families are just more fun to watch.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I just wanted to ask this because of the week that we're in. The novel explores patriarchy, and patriarchy that, uh, in this instance, is steeped in Croatian culture, among others. Um, mm. Do you think the recent march for justice by women across the country, demanding an end to sexual harassment and inequality, encourages, um, you know, you the female voice, like Amy, uh, your, your one of your lead female characters, like her voice, may start to be really heard
0: yeah absolutely um i uh i think there's been a lot of focus um uh from reviewers and from interviewers on um the toxic male patriarchal part of this book and you know and that there are themes of violence but i think for me the core Part of the, the, the really exciting part of this novel for me was making those female characters. Um, Amy Novak, Amy, Amy <laughs> Novak, who is who is Johnny Novak's wife. Um, she tells half the story; he tells half the story. And um, I wanted her to develop from being a kind of naive middle-class Aussie chick who just happens to marry a gangster. Into someone who really, you know who has her own agenda and who has her own power. And, uh, and, and and I think she does that. You know, by the middle of the book, she is starting to really tap into her own hidden strengths and uh, and also Branka, um, Johnny's mum, the matriarch of the family she's married to Milan who is the godfather of the family the the big alpha male and 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 Branca deals with the death of her eldest child by retreating into the kitchen and and cooking um with slow silent tears and and she's very much seen in a sort of submissive position right up until she decides to Uh, To drink that shot of rakia, suck it down on the table and say, No, Milan, your business has taken my eldest son. It will not take, you will not take my youngest son. You will not.
1: She's one of my favorite characters.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yes. And Granny Slater. You know, every, everyone loves Granny Slater, too. Is, who's She's the grandmother of one of the antagonists, one of the evildoers, uh, uh, who turns out to be, you know, uh, an arch nemesis. And, and she, <laughs> she gets involved and, you know, she has hidden strengths that you would never expect an old lady to pull out of a handbag.
1: <laughs> no she's absolutely delicious as well she's the um she's the you know the surprise amongst the pigeons really isn't she
0: yes she is and and i think that was um that was something I really wanted to get across is that even within a a, a toxic male patriarchal kind of society which is is, is what a you know a, a croatian gang would be um the the women quietly step to the fore and and um and become the leaders
1: yeah absolutely mm. Um, mm. i'm i'm interested you've I, I heard you say that um uh, you once referred to yourself as uh, with the imposter syndrome uh, where second guessing <laughs> yourself was was common nature do you think that's still
0: true for you um, yeah i think so um, uh, it isn't it isn't i mean my My dream was always to become a writer. It was something I always wanted to do because I really love reading. You know, I love it. And I always wanted to write the kind of book I love to read. And I love to read crime thrillers and murder mysteries, psychological thrillers, and love stories. And um, I I actually, I I just didn't know how to go about doing it. And I was reading The Dry by Jane Harper, one of your recent guests. Uh, up to her fourth book now. Is it her fifth book? No, it's a fourth book, is yeah. She's writing her fifth book right now. And um, an absolute legend, Jane. And in the acknowledgement section of The Dry, she mentions the Curtis Brown Creative Writing Course and that she wouldn't have been able to produce that book without them. And I didn't realise you could do creative writing courses online. So that opened up this whole world to me. And I'm very thankful to Jane. She's my unwishing mentor and uh, set me on a path to find out what to do, like to take a course or two. I ended up taking two courses in, in learning how to write. And the vast majority of my career has been learning on the run. You know, I, I, I didn't go to university. I don't have any degrees. I don't have any letters after my name. Uh, and I just learnt on the run. And... For so the first time, I decided, no, I'm going to actually learn about this craft because it's that important to me. I really want to know what I'm doing. I want to, I want to write a book and I want it to be published. And, uh, and so I set about doing that. And because I, I actually kind of feel like I know a bit about the craft now and I'm learning all the time, uh, and I have so many learning opportunities within text, my wonderful author Penny Houston has taught me an enormous amount Uh, and as I write the second book the sequel I'm learning more and more but the interesting thing is I kind of as soon as I was actually published I stopped feeling like an imposter I felt like I'm actually a crime writer yeah I'm doing this the coolest feeling in the world you know to get to the middle of you your life and to be able to use all the experience you've gathered and put it to work doing like your dream job. Absolutely,
2: oh,
1: absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, I was him. actually going to ask, you know, as a writer, <laughs> do you think that um, that life always informs that your own experiences feed into your
0: stories? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, My first job was as a magician's assistant, which, you know, you wouldn't think necessarily would be that helpful to becoming a crime writer. <laughs> <laughs> and not everyone can say that. <laughs> no, no. My first job was a goodie. Um, um, but, you know, it, it, I signed a contract to say I would never divulge how any of the magic worked. And it is magic, by the way. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> it's it's also about distraction and about storytelling and you know that's what you need to do as uh, as a writer Um, you need to leave enough crumbs along the way so that your reader um, isn't blindsided by the end by the result at the end by the resolution. They're not blindsided. They go, ah, now I get why that happened. Why that happened. Why that that happened. And uh, but they've also you've also got to be able to distract um, uh, your reader uh, enough along the way so that you know you you don't guess what's coming every step of the way. You know when you're watching telly and you just know you can see that. I think it's been referred to. Um, by others as the puppet strings, and you, you start yelling at the television. Oh, she's going to come down the stairs now and say, you know, whatever. <laughs> like you don't want that to be happening when someone's reading your book. Absolutely. But you also don't want them. You don't, also don't want them to go. Oh, come on, that couldn't possibly happen when they get to the end. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So,
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And your characters are so cleanly and so divinely fleshed out. Um, I was interested to know what came first. Was it um, the, the narrative, the story, or, or was it the characters that you then needed to find the story for? Um,
0: kind of a little bit of a combination of both. Um, the The character of Johnny Novak was inspired by my husband, the Croatian dead Denton and he is um, he's dyslexic he left school at 14 and he was absolutely destined for a life of crime he, uh, he that was the easy path for him and, uh, and he took it and it wasn't until he was in his late teens that he realised that that probably wasn't the best way to stay alive because a lot of his friends were ending up dead or in jail and that he should take a different path which he did, he, he decided to become a successful businessman and, and that's what he went about doing but Some of the stories he would tell me I would drag out of him about his time during uh, that part of his life just inspired me to write a character. I wanted to write a character who... you who had actually been born into a crime family. Because, you know, how do you get out if you're born into a crime family? And what sort of different life do you have as a teenager, particularly to, to the rest of us so when you're learning about the family business? And uh, so, so Johnny Novak came first. And then, and I wrote the first draft of the book is... Uh, during a, a writing course called the first draft writing course with the Writers Studio in Sydney, online, and it it, uh, it was told from Johnny's point of view, but in third person and past tense. And then I realised during the second draft that all my female characters were cardboard. And I desperately didn't want that. And I wrote one scene from Amy's point of view in first person, in present tense, just to get under her skin a little. And that scene made it almost verbatim into the book. It's the scene where Amy meets Johnny and they end up going to Croatia. And... uh, She really came alive during that scene. I really loved writing her. And when I shared that with fellow students um, during the Curtis Brown Creative Course out of London, um, the same one Jane Harper did, everyone was like, oh, we love Amy, we need more Amy. And she then gradually sort of took over about a third of the book. And then when I got the publishing deal with text, my editor uh penny houston said to me we kind of need to even up the point of view so half of the story to hold from johnny's point of view and half the stories told from amy's point of view and i was like oh i don't know if that's going to work because it's an action thriller and johnny's all about action and you know amy is just providing a sort of a, a different view but she's also carrying this dark secret around and I don't know. And, and Penny said, look, think of it this way. Johnny provides the action thriller. Amy provides the psychological thriller. Oh, it's like an
2: epiphany.
0: <laughs> Light bulb moment in my head. Okay, now I get it. And off I went to work again.
1: I think that yeah. probably... Uh, you know helped propel um the you know the pace of the story of, of reading it I think it that probably supported um you know the falling into the story and and it just revealing as it un you know unraveled itself to you
0: yes. It did. It actually provided a lot more insight. Each each one of these steps, and there were a lot of drafts. <laughs> I think your first book goes through, an, you know, an enormous number of drafts between you know the first one and when and what actually gets published. Um, and each draft, you're adding layers and layers. The plot has remained the same from the first draft. So back to your earlier question the the plot the narrative has remained constant. It's just about adding layers to the characters and their backstories and why they're doing what they do, etc. That has been my main focus ever since that first draft. And during that process, I've learned how to write a book, um, which has been like just yeah, super cool to do. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely
1: and i just wanted to finish with the um the novacs as you say they're they're croatian and there's and there's such a wonderful um you know feel of their community not only through um you know the story of their family duty and legacy but also uh food and domesticity was it intentional <laughs> to create this common thread a familiar thread for the reader <sighs>
0: i uh, yeah I mean absolutely as much as anything is intentional when you're writing yeah, okay. um, uh yeah i mean that's my exposure to my husband's Croatian family is they you know they they cook, they eat, they drink, they sing, they tell stories they um uh I'm uh, not sure if I can say this on radio, but I'll say it anyway. They take the piss out of each other, like yeah. they're hard on each other, yes. right? And that's that. I just find that really interesting because I come from a very small family. We're all really nice to each other. <laughs> We're just loving and sweet, and um, and and his family is really big and boisterous and loud, and 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 it's all about cooking and eating and you know sharing stories and drinking like rakia, and so that to me really that was that is the croatian way so i wanted to to show that and i have a, a lot of friends now um and, and people telling me they're cooking litva all the time
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> oh look it was it's such a wonderful read so i really encourage everyone jump out there and purchase a copy of the second son um it's been a pleasure lorraine chatting to you thank you so much for um for joining us on backstory Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Absolute pleasure.
2: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from
1: Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. My second guest now joins me on the phone to talk about her latest novel, The Price of Two Sparrows. It's a story that explores what we hold sacred and why. It's a beautiful exploration on culture and climate change, the long-term effects of human development on the landscape and the prejudice that people hold on to, even when they no longer know why. Welcome, Christy Collins. Lovely to have you on the show. Lovely to speak to
2: you, Michelle.
1: Uh, the um the price of two sparrows, it's a um it's a, a really lovely piece. Um and it's a piece that um that is very thought provoking on, on what we lose in an increasingly secular society. What interests you so much as a writer about how individuals and communities foster prejudice? Yeah,
2: it's a good question. Um I think that um prejudice is something that sort of was built into us a little bit in Evolution, um, and it served us quite well for a long time, and now it uh, seems to trip us up. And what we know about it is that um, being near people who are different to you and having contact with them is a really good tool against prejudice. And so that's what I'm sort of hoping to show happening a little bit in the, as my as my book plays out. Absolutely,
1: it certainly does. Um, on that level, was was researching for the novel was it um was it a bit of an effort or was it really something that you relished?
2: Um, I, I really love research, but there was a lot of research involved with in <laughs> me. <laughs> and I, um, I initially wrote it set in the Netherlands, and so that was a lot of uh, research. I'd lived there in that time period myself. Um, and then uh, later, my publisher was keen to relocate it to Australia. So that was a whole other round. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> research about different birds and, and different uh, communities and stuff. So, yeah, so it has been a lot of research. But I, I do really enjoy that side of
1: it. Absolutely. Um, look, we consider ourselves in Australia to be somewhat of a, a progressive nation, you know, affirming ourselves as, as a host to multi- multiculturalism and the and fair go ideals. But, but what you revealed in the novel is this constant undercurrent of, of bias by way of ignorance. Or indifference. Was um, was this the cage that you wanted to rattle?
2: Yeah, well, I think that um, people are put in very complex positions sometimes. So, in the case of Heiko, my main character, he is really trying to fight for something that's completely unrelated in some ways, which is space for the birds that he feels a responsibility to and for a space where humans haven't encroached on. And um, so, yeah, he gets caught up in it despite. Perhaps not having a particular interest, or, or yeah, so yeah, so his his situation is complex. I think, and, and I think um, that's that's part of what goes on for a lot of people. They've got a lot of things on their plate, and. Um, yeah, something slipped down the list a little
1: bit. Absolutely, I think it's true. I think we all tend to be working in silos a lot of the time, and um, and you know we, we miss out on that opportunity to actually become a part of you know somebody else's uh, debate or dialogue, and we stop listening, and then you know we end up the wheels end up turning on themselves in our own cul de sacs, and and we kind of get stuck in our own stuff.
2: Absolutely, I think that that's that's what's happening quite a lot of time, and certainly um, it happens in workplaces as well.
1: Absolutely. You do. You expose this ambiguous nature um, of identity and, and reflection on self and you do it through race and religion and classism and, and belonging throughout the novel. Um, have we become so self-obsessed inside of our own filter bubbles, do you think, or are we, are we simply, you know, too arrogant to question and, and challenge the status quo?
2: Um, <laughs> that's a huge question. <laughs> um, if we had hours, we I, could go into it. <laughs> I think I think a lot of us are trying our best to try and keep on opening up and and keep on listening. But I do think that there's a real risk with listening to people who think exactly the same or who look a lot like us that we do keep thinking we're right about everything and um, and yeah, going further and further down our own our own paths. I think that that's right, and so I think that is a real trap that we need to kind of keep keep opening up from and keep. Talking to people who think differently and, and look different and have different religions and, and all the different... You know, different ways that we can be different from one other, another. I think it's really important.
1: Yeah, and I actually think you, um, I think you approached that really successfully in 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 the novel. I think it's done so beautifully. And I was compelled as a reader; my heart was just drawn to every character and every situation, and wanting to rattle some of them and and hold others. And you know, it was you really drew me in to each each character's story. It was it was beautifully done. Um, and Oh that's such a lovely response. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and some really beautiful writing and, and really interesting um, techniques you use in there. You were um you know you mix religion and environmentalism and racism, racism and you quote the Quran at, at chapter headings throughout the book and these kind of provided, at least for me, a coming back to was um, was this a tool that you kind of knew you were going to use as you when you started to write, or, or did it reveal itself to you as you as you you know evolved into into writing the piece?
2: Yeah, it was part of the process more for me. So initially, I was sort of writing the different sections, and I was doing it as part of a PhD. And my supervisor was saying to me, "I think we need more ways to sort of mark out different sections so it's easier for the reader to see where they are in the book." And that was one way I sort of discovered to do that. The other one is the uh, news pieces where there's sort of like time you can see what month it is and what happened in that month in australia and that was another tool i used to try and locate the reader a little bit
1: yeah and i I actually really appreciated that too i think it did i think that that grounded me into a space and time um and and gave me a sense of of time moving as well i think that was um a, a really useful tool without it feeling like it was a writer's
2: tool Right. Oh, that's good. Then it's worked. Then it That's great. It definitely was a writer's tool
1: yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And the, the story it it reveals um, an awareness of our our wider world from these migratory birds that are winging their way across the world to research projects to you know suburbs comprising of people of diverse and and culture uh, diverse cultural and and you know ethnic origins. Um, do you, is this you know a part of the reflections of, of complex humanity that you know the the world and society in Australia seems to have been thrust into
2: yeah I think i'm not the first person to observe the sort of metaphor between sort of migratory birds and and the movement of people and um, yeah, that was a very obvious metaphor to me when I started working on it and and I like how that plays out against yeah plays out in the in the novel and plays out. Yes, yeah, so a lot of the different people and the different characters in different ways. So Heiko's interested in birds, but a lot of the other characters notice birds too in, in different ways. And I, yeah, I think that that um, gives a resonance. That's quite interesting.
1: Yeah, I think it, I think it absolutely did, and it also provided, um, you know, along with your your beautiful ability to describe um, the environment around it, it created a, a kind of airflow, a, a you know, um, a, a freedom of of being able to explore this space in the novel, and then it would come into a different kind of um, cultural arc or a domestic arc, depending, you know, where the story moved. I think it was, you know, it might it have been a, a technique that's been used before or a metaphor that's been used before, but I think you placed it in a very Australian context and I, th- I think it played very nicely, uh, you know, against the idea of building the mosque, which, um, you know, effectively in the end was in flow with with notions of a, of a bird. Yeah,
2: th- thank you. That's uh, interesting. When you were talking about the birds, I was thinking about indeed the, the resonance with that, with the mosque and the, and the way that that shapes space. So it's not something I'd consciously thought about those two together, but I think that those two things do do similar work in terms of sort of carving out space, space for people and space not for people in some ways as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Did you have any um, familiar experience um, with these different cultures before coming in to write the book or were you just fascinated with them or, you know, how is it that you came up with these these two, um, you know, what appear to be apparent opposing ideas but, in you know, in retrospect, they probably wanted the same thing in different ways with different outcomes?
2: Um, Yeah, um, I've done some sort of different research, my background is in um, the social sciences and so I have been interested in some of these things in uh, certainly the environment and why people behave the way they do in relation to the environment, I've done some research on that and also uh, sort of more sociological research on um, religions and so those two interested me sort of in silos but they are definitely extremely interesting to put together I think, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it, well, successfully, I think, because the the book is, you know, a beautiful read and and it brings those two worlds together. Um, I think it was, yeah, really beautiful. Oh thank you. It's um it's very simplistic to sort of say that um a belief can become stuck in dogma and specific rules when faith can be more embrace of of difference and, and contrary points of, of view, be it in religion or academia or, or political endeavours or corporations or even relationships. But um but the novel does compel us to question, you know, why do I believe what I believe? Have I changed? Has the world around me changed and does my belief need to adapt or, or to die? Um, I wondered if this was your intention to hold the reader accountable for their beliefs you know, during the process of reading and then also at the end to be able to sit with it and for it to come back and to, um, you know, to question their own, their own belief systems.
2: Um, I'm delighted if it does that. I think I was more trying to do it for myself a little bit because, <laughs> um, because, because as I say, we all hold quite complex, beliefs and and, uh, commitments and things and and sometimes they do seem to sort of run up against each other and I yeah I was really interested in how how these two sort of play against each other if you push them right to a point of direct conflict which often we don't face exactly that we just sort of you know we just prioritize one thing over another but in this case they're placed in direct opposition that and we can't have two winners and yeah I, I guess I wanted to check that in some ways for myself, think it through all the way um, over an amount of time and, um, yeah, with different people sort of speaking to to their priorities in, in, uh, in a sort of 360 take on the sort of community approaches.
1: Absolutely. And also I think it raises questions about, um, you know, uh, where we source our information from and whether that is, um, as you've got an example in here, of a a journalist and and print media or if people are getting it from their their social media outlets. And and we tend to take things as as something just to be uh, accepted and believed and we jump onto bandwagons without you know questioning those things ourselves so I, I think it's a really nice whether it was intentional or not um you know play against that role of uh, um you know how much do you do you should you actually be questioning uh, where you're where you're getting information from and then how much we actually should be using that information to to um to then reveal where the truth lies for us
2: yeah i think that's really important and of course it was something i was thinking about with the opening of the novel where um, Heiko um, doesn't pick up on a, on a sort of misunderstanding that um, he sort of more or less deliberately sort of sets in motion for his local newspaper. But I think we've seen the effect of it very much in the last 12 months around corona and now with the vaccines and so on. It's just, it's so important to source good information and um, but yeah, the responsibility of the media and so on as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then once we get into, um, you know, an idea of something, we end up running with it and, and, you know, knowing when to actually stop and question it and jump off the treadmill and when to, you know, continue with it. Absolutely. Look, it's yeah, been a, it's been an absolute pleasure um, not only reading your novel but having a chat with you. So I really encourage our listeners to um to go and purchase uh, the novel whichever way you would like to. The price of two sparrows, beautiful title. Um, so thank you very much, Christy Collins, for coming onto Triple R's Backstory to talk with me. I really appreciate your time.
2: Thanks very much, Michelle.
1: Cheers. Independently yours, Triple R.